An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today, we're pleased to welcome Mindy Lubert as our guest on Outside In. Mindy is the CEO and president of Ceres. Ceres is the leading sustainability advocacy nonprofit in the United States. It brings together both 120 of the world's largest corporations and 700 institutional investors with some 60 trillion, yes, with a T, in assets under management to find both private sector and governmental answers to sustainability issues, including climate, water, and biodiversity. Mindy has been CEO since 2003. That is a very long time in a very stressful position, but she keeps racking up accomplishments. When she marshaled private sector support for Paris Climate Accords, Vogue magazine called her a climate warrior. More recently, the United Nations gave her its top environmental honor, deeming her a champion of the earth. Barron's has named her one of the hundred most influential women in finance multiple times. One reason Mindy's been effective is that she understands both the environmental and finance sides of series. She founded Green Century Capital Management using both her finance and entrepreneurial skills. Her environmental knowledge led her to be appointed regional administrator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And it's probably not a surprise to learn that she has both an MBA and a law degree, or that she served as president of the National Environmental Law Center. But Mindy's interest in and advocacy for market-based environmental solutions was obvious early on. As a teenager growing up in Long Island, she was upset that her town didn't have a recycling program. So she started one. Last I heard, it was still going strong and recycled some 4,000 tons a year. So welcome, Mindy. Thank you, John. That was all too kind. And I'm smiling just listening to um, how long it's been since uh, both you and I have been working in this space. So let's go back to how long it's been. What's your origin story? We, we find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are? Seeing the products of your labor. So for me, understanding that I had agency, that I had some power to do something and to act, even in high school, um, was important for me. And so I was surprised when our town didn't do recycling. It was complicated to try and build a town-wide recycling program. I could tell you all the things I did wrong. Um, eventually, we got it right. But as a high school kid, I realized, hey, I can make a difference. And I'll give you one more example. When I was in college, I was doing a study for the Ralph Nader Group, the New York Public Interest Research Group. And it was a fairly simple problem of the world where hearing aid providers providing and prescribing hearing aids to people who had no ability to hear with or without a hearing aid, people who were stone cold deaf. 
Um, and yes, because it was a profit-making venture and there seemed to be no checks and balances and no regulatory sphere of influence, elderly people, ill people, healthy people with serious hearing problems were being convinced here, just let me fix that problem with the $1,000 hearing aid or whatever the price was. Um, and we did the study and we brought elderly people to hearing aid dealers and clearly the problem was even bigger than we thought. And I, as a sophomore in college, was given encouragement by Ralph Nader, by a man named Donald Ross, to go to Albany, find somebody to write a bill that could be turned into a law that says hearing aid dealers should not be able to prescribe. They should be like a pharmacist. They can only give you the drugs that your doctor prescribes. Um, we wrote the law with some help from very smart legislators and their staff, and we passed that law. Um, all as part of a student project. So for me, learning and understanding that truly any one of us could have an impact and an impact that makes a difference is probably what inspired me to coming out of graduate school and law school to take the course of advocacy um, and to try and change things that didn't seem just right. Let's get to series, but before we do that, um, I have to disclose to our listeners that I have a long though intermittent relationship with Ceres and with you. Ceres was initially formed in 1989 by Joan Bavaria, a brilliant responsible investor with the assistance from then California controller, Gray Davis and my boss at the time, then New York State controller, Harrison Golden. In fact, I staffed the initial announcement of the formation of Ceres, which unveiled the then called Valdez principles, a set of early environmental principles for private sector companies that name referred to the Exxon Valdez, an oil tanker, which had run aground in Prince William Sound in Alaska. Um, we soon changed the name to the series principles when Ben and Jerry's, the very first signatory, said that the name was akin to the Audubon Society being named the Dead Oily Bird Society. Ben and Jerry's always has been good at marketing. Since then, I have attended and spoken at series conferences, and when I ran the investments for New York City's pension funds, my staff served on the series board. Decades later, when I was running the IRC Institute, we funded some series projects, including what became a very successful water tool. So there's some history there. But now that I've disclosed it, I can note that it also means that I remember that at the beginning, corporations were not exactly jumping over each other to sign the series principles. And as I said, by contrast now, series under Mindy works with 120 corporations 700 investors, 60 trillion in assets, and has 160 staff running any number of programs. So I apologize for that long disclosure, but it, it serves as usual background. Mindy, why do you think Sirius has experienced such tremendous growth and maturation? And what distinguishes Sirius from World Wildlife or Nature Conservancy or any of the other sustainability-focused not-for-profits? What is been the secret to our success, what's the secret sauce? I mean, part of it, John, and, and this may sound cavalier, but it's right. It's, it, it's a combination of values and ideas and facts whose time has come. And let me get much more specific. Joan Bavaria, whose shoulders we stand on, um, literally said something that should have been obvious. And I'm sure others said it before, but not in this effective way, that Somehow, environmental issues were only for environmentalists and business issues were separate and businesses and investors 
really ought not to have, have very little to do with the environment, with social issues. That is just not proving to be the case. You know, Ceres had a fairly simple jingle uh, or marketing piece 30 years ago, and we live by the same principle, integrating sustainability into capital markets. And let me talk about that. Any business who literally says, that stuff's not for me, that's for the greenies, that's for this, that's the soft science. Tell me if you were a company, if you were Coke or Pepsi or Levi Strauss or The Gap, and I could go on and on, or running the largest farm system in the state of California or restaurants or grocery stores. If you are not concerned about water and the fact that by 2030, we'll have 56% of the total water we need, and by 2026, it won't be quite as dire as 2030, but we'll still be about 25% short of the water we need. There is no business, and I'm gonna come back to this other small thing, John, called humanity, but there is no business that could function if they run manufacturing, if they run farms, if they need cotton, if they need other crops without enough water. So integrating sustainability, water is one example that we're talking about. And John, you and I have worked together on this early before anyone was thinking about it. Why are we not integrating water into the business proposition of everything we do? And I'd argue we're starting to, and that's with more facts, more figures, more understanding, we're starting to see more engagement. I do want to note, water also happens to be the lifeblood of humanity. Not one of us could figure out how to keep going if we don't have access to water for all the things we use beyond drinking water, beyond keeping our family safe, beyond washing our clothes or cleaning things. Why are we not, is the question we've been asking, and I think we're starting to see those changes, companies, investors, and others integrating water and the risk of not having enough of it into everything we do. And we've done that with climate in the early 2000s. Climate risk was in the concept. People thought about climate change as some environmental hippy-dippy thing that was going on out there, but it certainly didn't have an impact on Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley. And in fact, it did. That was just false pretentious uh, assumptions that needed to be changed. When we started the investor network on climate risk and did our first investor summit announcing the results of our value at risk where we talked about how the value of our economy, in addition to the value of our humanity, was at risk. We tried to get financial leaders into the room, ran an event at the United Nations. Every financial firm in 2004 wrote back saying, well, we'll send our environmental intern. Or we don't, this must be a mistake. We're not sure why we're invited to an environmental conference. And we upped the ante. We got some asset owners, we'll come back to it, owners of capital, to say to those management firms, to each and every one of the large investment firms, we see the risk from ignoring climate risk. We want you to come. And that's been a development with Ceres and hundreds of others. But there are no more large publicly traded companies or large investment firms who would say to you, we don't have to be concerned about global warming or water shortages or, frankly, social inequities of our life. Well, let me push back on that a little. We're recording this in late summer 2022. And I have to ask, there's an ESG backlash. First, they would say the governor of Texas, the controller of Texas, the governor 
of Florida that, in fact, this is, quote, woke capitalism. And in fact, it has nothing to do with investing and that government should set these policies, not investors or companies. Second, the criticism hasn't just been from the left, it's from the right. It's also been from the left. And so I'll give you a chance to rebut my second and third criticisms from both the right, the woke capitalist people, as Harvard and Oxford professor Bob Eccles calls them, the sustainability flat earthers, or from the left, where nothing's ever pure enough, so he calls them the sustainability Taliban. So there are people who say, and ironically, both the extreme left and the extreme right say, no, government has to solve the problem or government has to say it's not a problem from depending on what your political side is. So how do you deal with that and what's your rebuttal? Well, first of all, policy and the role of government is very important. So I wouldn't debate that. I would agree. Yes, we need private sector action and we need public policy to change. Why do I think we're all of a sudden, particularly from the right, the right who has always aligned itself with corporatists and investor leaders is now throwing darts at that world. I think it's because it has taken hold. The integrating sustainability into capital markets has taken hold. The fact that 10,000 companies are committing to getting to science-based targets and analyzing climate risk is now part of the way we run our businesses. Um, and that was threatening to the right, who want to continue to say climate risk isn't real, it doesn't exist, it's magical. The facts say otherwise, and the facts of storms and people dying, the facts of economic downfall when the Gap and Levi Strauss lose the cotton crop, the fact that the farms during the biggest drought a couple of years ago in California were operating at 50%. That meant they were laying off 50% of their folks. That meant the prices were much higher. That meant every citizen paid more at the grocery store. The facts are that you could try and dismiss climate risk as a green lefty issue, but that is not the reality of the facts, of the science, of the economics, and what we're seeing. And we've got to stand on not words and not calling out names and not putting people in boxes, but literally let's just look at the facts. Investors are fiduciaries. They're looking at numbers. We don't want them to be political animals. They are not. I do not believe any of the 600 plus investors we work with on climate risk at political animals, they are doing their jobs. They're looking at the real financial costs to each company in their portfolio and what it means if they are integrating sustainability in a thoughtful and analytical way or whether they're not a well-managed company and they think they could just ignore these matters for another decade or so. As you say, these are the facts and it's taken hold. And yet the largest governmental success has been the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. The other fact is not a single Republican voted for it, right? It was a 50-50 vote with the vice president breaking the tie. If this is so obvious, why has this become a partisan issue as opposed to a fact-based coalition of the willing, in effect, where some Democrats would vote for it, some Republicans, some on each side not. It is regrettable. It is sad. It's frankly heartbreaking that right now in the United States, in so many ways, facts don't matter. 
They just don't matter. People are saying X and mothers believe it. Um, the reality is facts do matter. They should matter. Whether or not our kids have a future or not matters to me and should matter to everybody, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, a left or a right. And let's even look at Texas. So you talked about the state of Texas. The governor and the treasurer have said they don't want to do business with some of the largest underwriters, the most successful underwriters in the world. So they're saying to Citi, to Bank of America, to J.P. Morgan, to Morgan Stanley, um, we don't want you to do a certain piece of our work, underwriting of our investments, because you are talking about climate change as if it's an economic matter. So fine. They stopped those enterprises from doing business. They hired somebody with far less expertise, and it's costing the citizens of Texas far more money for the Texas governor and controller and treasurer to use less experienced, less capable players to do their bond underwriting. There's nothing sensible about that. We need to look at the matters and I think it's going to take us some time, John, but it is crucial to move these out of political issues. Look, we're all human beings. If a bus were coming at our kids, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat from a red state or blue state, tall, short, black, white, we would jump in front of that bus. We would stop that bus from coming at our kids. Indeed, we have a bus coming at our kids and at our economy, um, and somehow, there are people who think we could ignore it and just wish it away. You know, facts are facts. Science is science, and we simply cannot wish this away. We've been talking about successes and saying series of success, and I read off the list of your accomplishments. Look at it from another angle, though. Series, and all of us, literally everyone who cares about climate, the environment, sustainability, and the risk that climate change poses to the financial markets, we've failed. Because if we hadn't failed, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today, right? Facing permanent climate change um, as a result of human activity, facing backlash. We haven't convinced people the facts matter. Backlash over basic investing principles like risks should be mitigated and minimized. And one can think of any number of reasons for that failure, you know, from an installed base of vested economic interests to differential development rates around the world, lack of political wills regulatory capture, whatever, an academic community that prefers elegant financial math to the more complicated interactions that result when you look at the real world environmental systems and the financial markets and on and on. I don't want to go through the litany of that. And I know that you have been talking about the need for scale and speed for decades. So rather than dwell on those excuses for we can call it failure or not enough success or whatever you want to call it. What needs to be done to succeed rapidly and at scale starting today so that we get the political will, the capital necessary, the expertise, the technology, the implementation, the governmental policies? What do we have to do to succeed? John, you and I have agreed on a lot of things for the 25 years that we've worked together or known each other cross paths. I'm going to disagree. Um, only on the point of have we failed and we have. There's no doubt we haven't gotten to where we need to go. And maybe it's just a definition. And of course, we go from there. But five years ago, companies were still rolling their eyes when we said, you need to get to science-based targets. 
You need an audacious climate action plan that has short, medium, and long-term goals. You need to be transparent. And lo and behold, there are now thousands of companies that are doing that. Are they there? Not yet. But they have agreed that that's where they need to go. Now, we want to make sure those are real commitments. That's not greenwashing. That when they say it, they're going to do it. They've got transparent goals and they're involving people. I think we are making progress. We also know that companies care about their employees. Every company right now is competing for the best and the brightest. Um, all the kids that come out of the great business schools and so on. The young people have made it clear they want to work for a values-driven company, and they're going to help turbocharge where companies go. Consumers, not as fast as we know in terms of shopping and voting with their pocketbook, but they're starting to show that they want to shop at companies that make a difference. Investors. The fact that we have 657 investors with $55 trillion under management who are saying, we want to invest in the companies that are managing climate risk, not ignoring it. So the answer is we are making progress. The other side of that is it's not quick enough. The true way to turbocharge is in the end, we need policy changes because moving one company or 10 or 20 or 100, 1,000, even 10,000 is nowhere near enough. We need to move 100,000 companies. And we need to move the massive amounts of capital in the right direction. So let's look at what that means. What it means is the administration has said on procurement, they're the largest purchaser in the world. They need to put their money where their mouth is. They need to say, if we're going to implement the infrastructure bill from six months ago, that the steel we use and the cement we use to spend on trillions of dollars worth of purchases have to be cleaner, have to be smarter, have to be better. That all of the vehicles of the U.S. government and state governments have to be electric vehicles. We could go on and on and on and on. We've got to put our money where our mouth is. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act seeks to do that as well. More money in technology that might actually get us to a carbon-free future. Um, money into carbon capture and sequestration. There's no silver bullet. Uh, but we do need public policy, and I think you could only go so far on a one-company, 10-company, 100-company basis. We also need government regulation on information flow. So you know as well as anybody, you're an expert on government policy and regulatory policy. The SEC's recent rule, now it's a draft rule, we all know that, but the SEC's recent draft rule, 507 pages, single-spaced, talks about the need for mandatory climate risk disclosure. Now, John, there's enormous pushback. 14,211 comments, I believe. A lot of them oppose the draft rule. A lot of them very powerful networks like the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable. So I don't want to tell you we are done. But the fact that that draft rule said the following, that we must have mandatory climate risk disclosure, that we must have data, that investors need that data to make smart decisions, that we must look at all of the risks from climate. We must consider it a material financial risk, not an environmental good thing to have when you're in a good mood or something. That's taking us and making enormous progress. When we see corporate boards of directors bringing us in to help them understand their role as fiduciaries and why acting on climate and water is their financial responsibility 
and their fiduciary responsibility, not some cute thing that they'll discuss when the CEO of their company allows them to. The changes are very real and they're happening and the world is changing. Again, not fast enough and that's our job. But if five years ago or even three years ago, we had a handful of companies considering coming up with a climate action plan or making a specific commitment to net zero by 2040 or 2050, and now we have thousands. When you and I do this show three years from now, we will have, I believe, tens of thousands. And if we pass the public policy, we'll have hundreds of thousands. Does that change a bit of a reflection of a more realistic view of what has to be done? And here's what I mean by that. The argument is always, as you say, people want to invest in and people want to have companies that run sustainability, they attract better employees, higher profitability, et cetera. And certainly things like reducing energy costs are definitely win-wins. They're good for the environment, good for shareholders. But is there a maturation going on that says, look, focusing on situations where everyone wins is a little bit like a sugar high. It tastes good. Even provides a little energy short term, but it doesn't build the necessary bones or muscles, or in this case, scale and speed. And that, yes, some companies can do well and go to a real net zero with real, let's not define how we debate how we define, but but let's call it a real net zero. But that others do do well by doing bad, by externalizing costs in a world in which they don't pay for greenhouse gas emissions. And that Therefore, maximizing enterprise value for every company is not a universal good, either for diversified investors, where our portfolios overall suffer when those externalities affect the economy, or for society, because the rest of us have to either pay for the externalized costs or suffer the consequences or the environment. So do you think we need to re-examine that mantra, the limitations of doing well by doing good? No, I don't think we need to change it. Now, I do think we need to look at some of the financial structures. You talked a few times about externalities and and think about this. And this goes back to our discussion on public policy. When something is free, you generally get a lot more of it. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. So right now, reducing or putting emissions into our air, that's free. We do not price carbon emissions in the air, despite the billion dollars of cost to society. So in the end, we need to price carbon. We need to not make them externalities, make them a real part of the economic equation that's happening in some places. It's not happening in others. It is not being debated extensively in the United States right now. Uh, But carbon pricing is crucial. Um, But do I think it is good for all businesses? No. If you were a fossil fuel business, and you have made more money than most countries in the world, and you've done it by selling fossil fuels, by mining, by pulling them out of the ground, by getting thousands of patents for your product, um, by knowing the technology for how to bring it to market. It's not easy to say to you, oh, by the way, you ought to morph into a renewable energy company. Those fossil fuel companies think morphing into a renewable energy company is not very different than morphing into a woman's underwear company. It's not what they do. It's not what they know. And it's not what they're going to do. And so there there are not insubstantial problems here. We've got to think about how to make those transitions. Nobody wants 
entire industries to go away. But how do they start morphing? And how do they put more money into carbon capture and sequestration? And how do they deal with the reality that their product, like tobacco and other products that we face, are just not good for society? And I think policy-wise, we're going to have to come up with some ways to deal with it. We've done better on coal. We know coal is the worst offender of creating the climate problem. And because it's a small enough industry, I think we've got lots of programs and more within the Inflation Reduction Act that will help train coal miners to move into other sectors, that will help compensate. So we, we've got to be smart about it. But once you get out of the incumbents who are creating the problem, and that's certainly a lot of people, I think we could find ways to make it worthwhile. Now, right now, the airlines, their fuel is not very clean. How do we both publicly, as the public entities of government and private entities, really develop sustainable fuels for airlines? It can be done. How do we make sure that cement, that steel, can be produced with less climate impacts? Those are the things we need to invest in, and we need to make it happen. You mentioned carbon pricing, and carbon pricing is every economist. I mean, nothing's every, but 99% of every economist um, says is the most efficient way to deal with it. Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist, the Nobel Prize winning economist, said, so why don't we have it? And it's the reality is it's not politically feasible at this point. And in fact, we saw what happened in France when they tried to carbon price without an offset. They had the guillotine, the the riots from basically working class people because a carbon price without any other changes basically affects working class more than anyone else. Um, they drive their cars, they are truck drivers, they work in factories, et cetera. Who is working, in your opinion, on having carbon pricing that somehow manages to mitigate those negative societal impacts around income inequality and who it impacts the most? What you're saying, John, has become an imperative, which is you could take a more sanitized economic model and figure out through just straight economics what kind of pricing you need on climate to start changing behavior. Um, and that's one way to do it. And I would argue that it's hard enough to think about passing carbon pricing. But if you do it that way, where it is just about economics in a neat little box, we will fail with complete confidence, I say that. We saw some of it happen in California where they didn't factor in social equity issues. And that can be factored in. It's not easy. Traditional economists don't have easy formulas or numbers for it. Um, some of the people in the communities that are most impacted aren't used to being at the table for designing these models. But we've got to move forward and put real price on carbon pollution. And we've got to do it in a way that goes beyond the normal economic models, but factors in social equity. And it can be done. We just have to start changing our thinking. I think there's some debate going on. Our staff have, we've got an economist on our team who's working with others. Um, it is not on the front burner right now of the United States Congress, but hopefully next time we talk, uh, it will be. It certainly belongs to be, as you said, every economist believes that that is the most efficient way to have an impact on carbon emissions, and we haven't done it. And that's that's got to be done. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? 
You know, we are making progress and I'm passionate about that. It's not that I don't live in the real world and feel heart sick over the divisions, over the fact that we're almost living in a civil war, parts of the country against other parts. But if you just find the right message and the right debates, we're making progress. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? John, you're asking now, you get to the hard questions. You think they're easy. Uh, I'm I said short. I didn't say easy. Uh, I'm sitting in Chatham, Massachusetts right now, Cape Cod. We've got a sweet little home near a pond or on a pond. Um, and it's probably the only place I know how to relax. But I do go sit out on the pond and listen to the birds and look at the water and realize nature does matter, even though Many people know me and know that I sometimes would rather go to a concrete mall than go hiking in the mountains. Uh, but here on my little pond uh, in Chatham, I relax certainly better than anywhere else. What music do you listen to? I love female vocalists. Sarah Bareilles is at the top of my hit parade right now. Um, but I went to see Alicia Keys with my husband and double dated with my 32-year-old son and his girlfriend. And she just killed it. So female vocalists. Fairly pop culture. I'm not sure what words to put on it. What are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading a book by Jamie Raskin. Uh, the book is called Unthinkable. He has led the impeachment process and is the key is one of the key leaders on the January 6th committee. And he also suffered an extraordinary tragedy in one of his three beloved children taking his own life. And he talks about how Nancy Pelosi urged him literally a week after Tommy passed away, his 25-year-old son, who sounds like an extraordinary person. She asked him to run the, the January 6th hearings or to be a key part of it or to run the impeachment process. And he talks about just how that brought him out of the worst depths of depression. And you never get over losing a child, but how doing good, somehow taking on the important things in life are a great healing way. So it's a comp it's a deep book in terms of his sense of history, as well as weaving politics and personal tragedy together. But it, I think it's beautifully done and I'm only halfway through it. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? Two things. And these are the very things I told my children as they were growing up. Be kind and be honest. And if we all were kind and honest, I think we'd be in a better place right now. Thank you. Good advice. We started, as Mindy said, anyone can have an impact, and she certainly has. And while she may be a climate warrior, she has done it largely by being kind and nice and believing optimistically that people can do the right thing. So thank you so much, Mindy, for joining us. Great. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCombick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John McCombick, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.